Liftoff, and we're back to the Wages of Cinema. Welcome back to the Wages of Cinema. I am Andrew. I am Jack, and I'm just going to turn my level down a tiny bit, and we should be all good. How's it going, Andrew? I'm fine. Good. That's good to hear. Talk about Daredevil. Hey, I was I was going to introduce that. <laughs> you took too long. <laughs> and you had you guess it was Daredevil. Oh, yeah, I think I probably told you, didn't I? Yes, uh, I just wanted to mention really fast that, uh, before we get to the movie discussion, that this past weekend, actually all of yesterday, I did nothing but watch the Marvel Daredevil series on Netflix. And the reason I wanted to bring it up briefly was just because, uh, you know, Marvel is now entering the realm of... Fantasy and adventure. No... No, they've already done that. Intrigue and mystery. I don't know. They've already had the talking raccoon and tree duo. So they've already entered the world of fantasy and adventure. This is more like grisly, almost R-rated, hard-boiled adventure. Okay. Um, so, yeah, that's it's really worth checking out if you haven't seen it. It might be one of the very best things that Marvel Studios has done yet. Um, like I put up there with the first Iron Man as far as really great Marvel things. And because even though it's 13 episodes, it unfolds like a movie. You watched it with Matt yesterday, didn't you? I did watch it with our friend Matt Catania. What was his impression, do you think? He liked it a lot, too. He wasn't quite sure going in if he would love it. Um, You know, there's always that uncertainty. I mean, the last Daredevil thing that came out was the 2003 movie with Ben Affleck, and uh, which was also Directed by Kevin Smith. No, it wasn't directed by Kevin. He he had a cameo. I'm in it. pretty sure it was directed by Kevin Smith. No, you know who directed it? The guy who made Kevin Ghost Smith. R- you didn't let. <laughs> if you want to live in a world where know. Kevin Smith made know. Daredevil, that might make that feel better for you. No, 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 it was directed by the guy who did Ghost Rider. Wow. <laughs> see now, that, see that stopped you in your tracks, didn't it? Uh, yeah. And I was reminded the other it was uh. <laughs> I was reminded the other day I, was, uh, I wasn't ready for that No And I was reminded Because I hadn't seen the movie in so long Just really fast before we move on Like I watched the Nostalgia Critics review Of Daredevil And Colin Farrell He plays Bullseye In the movie He's like one of the main yeah. villains of Daredevil I forget how over the top he goes in that movie. He really pulls up Nicolas Cage before Nicolas Cage and Ghost Rider. He's actually more over the top. Like he, at one point, he points he, after having a fight with a villain, he points to his bullseye on his forehead and says, "Bullseye," and then runs <laughs> off. <laughs> That's not threatening. He, he sounds like a, like a flasher. He opens up his <laughs> coat, says something creepy, and runs away. Where is our Colin Farrell flasher movie? Well, he did do a sex tape. Great. <laughs> That's good enough for you, isn't it? You know, uh, as much as... As much as we'd love as to continue over the top, talking about this. I uh, still love him in Alexander. All right, let's All get right. to work. So now, we'd like to try something a little different this episode. Uh, hopefully we'll see how it works. Uh, if it works out, maybe we'll make it a regular segment. If not, if not, you know, the... Being creative, you always want to try new things, and uh, what we're going to try to do this week is something that tentatively we're calling the two-minute dash. The, the two-minute movie mile, Jack. Well, see, I was I said the two-minute dash, and you were like, huh, let's, that'll be a good working title, and then you ran off a list of titles, but you didn't stick to any of them, so I wasn't going to call it anything else. 
The point is, we're going <laughs> to talk about the movies we saw over the past two weeks. Each one in two minutes or fewer. Yes, we're going to be... Uh, we're gonna be too fast and too furious. Don't bring up the past, Jack. Mm, All yeah. right, so you go first, Jack, and okay. we're gonna have your first movie. We're gonna switch back and forth as uh, as much as we can. Gonna get a little bit of interplay with each other, but the only the only thing is we have two minutes to do it. So I'm gonna time you, and as soon as I say go, you talk about your first movie. Are you ready? I'll try my best. Go. Okay. So first one I want to talk about. Speaking of my saying, there was Furious Seven. Um, now this is the latest movie in the, the franchise movie for boys who love fast cars and guns and women and total ridiculousness. Which is all of them. Yeah. Or, you know, all of the rest of the world, apparently. Um, what this movie is, is a, another one of the line of movies where Vin Diesel and Paul Walker and company or the late Paul Walker, it's his last movie, the dead Paul Walker, the dead Paul Walker are in another series of adventures. This time they're being chased by Jason Statham, who's out for revenge, and has basically wandered like... off from another Jason Statham movie. I like how the Fast and Furious movies are collecting action stars from different <laughs> defunct franchises, well, as if like as if it's a lifeboat. I'll, I'll say this. Compared to other big action movie star extravaganzas like The Expendables... This was better. It's still ridiculous. It's still absolutely insane. The Expendables, um, though, has has its by virtue of a, a, a volume of old action stars. Well, so what do, so what does Fast and Furious have that the Expendables does not? Uh, it has a lot of things. Um, thank you for telling me. I will. I would say this. In fact, let me do this really fast. In my blog, I talked about what the movie has to offer, as if you're on a poster seeing the movie. So see. Five cars drive out of a moving airplane in the sky, and as they fall, they use GPS to carefully track to land perfectly on the ground with, no kidding, parachutes. All right, um, all right. See, another car driven off a hundred stories high or so in a tower off one skyscraper in Abu Dhabi, crash perfectly into another adjacent building window, drive some more, crash yet again, and then once more, crash perfectly into the next building. Like Mr. Owl, Owl will say, it's a one, a two, a three. All right. And lastly, I have to Ten mention seconds. I have to mention the rock because at one point he cracks open his supposedly broken arm out of his cast and he's all better. Alright. Now it's my turn. Jack, you have to time me. That's two minutes. Yes. Very good. It now. was it was not furious enough, but da, da, I tried. Da, keep going. Okay, in I'm gonna start in three, two, one. Batman and Robin. Oh! This was not of my own choice, but since I was there oh. and decided nothing better to do, I watched Batman and Robin. It has an awful script. This ha is the main problem well, with, ha the, with Batman and Robin. Yeah, it does have production despite value. Despite George Clooney, and despite whoever that guy is who plays Alfred, uh, despite Uma Thurman, and whatever uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Arnold Schwarzenegger is the best part of this movie. I don't know about that. He is. I think he is. Because Do you think he gets it? I think he does get it. The problem know. is it's a movie that doesn't work above a mental age of nine. <laughs> I, People I talk, they look like adults, they're dressed like adults, and it's comical that lines come out that sound like they should be said in like a third grade play. Yeah, the problem is, is that you know you can do cheesy, fun Batman. Yeah, we saw and that I in the think 1960s, that's what they were going for, but, but they it simply fails. Because... But they still try to do serious stuff, like the whole thing with Alfred is dying. You yeah, know, they still try to make that. Serious... Although there's a good lesson in there because, like, because it's all about Bruce Wayne can't 
can't let have himself let go of anything. He's trying to control everything, including death, and that's why he, that's a sort of source of tension with Robin. He he won't let him do his own thing, and he, it's because he's afraid Robin's going to die. Robin's one of the few people in his life, and Alfred's dying, and he's and Alfred's trying to tell him you can't control everything, and this is the key to to him le- letting Robin go and finding his own path. And uh, that would have been a great message because yeah. it's a great part of their relationship, but it's all buried underneath all this stuff, and it doesn't it doesn't play out like it should. It is a classic. It is one of the examples of Hollywood excess, just total excess in a movie gone yeah. awry. And like and like the first Batman film, uh, I said it's great because it has a great sense of place because I love all those Burton sets, and this place doesn't seem like a real place at all. It uh, it's all just like a bunch of sets that aren't connected to each other, and it's not in a real city. Time. All right, now it's your turn. Go. Okay, my next movie is Clute. Um, this C-L-U-T-E? Is, no, K-L-U-T-E. All right, like, like what's the call it about? Clute is a movie from the early 70s. Is this the with... Dutch version of Clue? <laughs> no, no, I need more time. All right, Jane Fonda is a prostitute. Or not, not a prostitute, she's a call girl. Okay, so but who speak. is she in this movie? Uh, well, she's someone who... A witness who may be a witness to a crime or some type of thing, or she may be like have some connection to a murderer. And so Donald Sutherland, who is actually the guy named Clute, he's Inspector or Detective Clute, uh, sort of you know try, needs Jane Fonda to help her find uh, who this guy is. The movie is the reason to see it is because of Jane Fonda. Uh, she got the Oscar for this movie. Um, I had never seen this movie, and I'd heard a lot about it. Um, she is excellent in the film because. Um, you know, up until that time, 1971, I mean, you could barely, sh- uh, you know, before that, you could barely show a call girl in the movie. Here, we get someone who is really interesting. She uses uh, her position as a call girl more so as like, you know, I'm not being used by men. I'm trying to help them enact their fantasies. I'm there to be, you know, somebody who's good and she's fun. very purposeful. She has. She's a purpose very purposeful. In life. She's and Fonda is constantly thinking in this role. Like she's not like she's constantly responding, even when she's not saying anything. Uh, near the end of the movie, there's a villain who has a very long monologue. And usually, when you see a villain monologue in a movie, it's, it, it's extraneous. It's, it's extraneous. This one actually works. This one feels like it's really trying to say something. I've always something. said that villains should not monologue unless at the end they kill the person they're going to kill. Well, they are about. Well, the guy was about. I can't. I don't want to spoil. Yeah, it. don't but, spoil it. Uh, but it's real. She's worth seeing the movie. Oh, and Gordon Willis uh, does the cinematography, and you know why when you watch this movie, he was called the Prince of Darkness, and. That's pretty much Time. it. Time! There we go. All right, let me stop my... My turn. Blip, blip, blip. All right. And three, two, one. The greatest story ever told. It was Easter. I was watching this on TCM with my family. And it's a long movie, and I didn't even think I was going to get invested in it. But I watched it, and I kept watching it, mainly because I was stuck in my armchair. But still, <laughs> uh, we all got quiet, and we started watching this. Oh. And I love this film because it's minimalist. In a way, the the sets are grand, but they're kind of plain. Uh, they mm. they're not very flashy. It's just like stone, and it takes and a lot of the locations are out in the open, like Monument Valley, the Grand Canyon. Uh, it's filmed out in America in the desert. Uh, whether this looks like ancient Israel is not the point, but it looks really cool. So this is about Jesus. It is about Jesus. Who plays uh, Jesus? Uh, Max von Sydow. Oh, okay. And yeah, he's I've, a I've really good movie. Jesus. The okay. problem is he doesn't like seem to have much personality. He's very much like uh, he seems two dimensional. But that's basically how Jesus comes off of off of in a lot of uh, in a lot of pictures. Uh, mm. 
but still there there's a cast of characters uh, a big uh, a big uh, a big cast packed with uh, cameos there's John Wayne Sidney Poitier uh, uh let's see uh what's his name uh, Roddy McDowell uh was he named? what's his na- what's his name from MASH Klinger uh, what's <laughs> Alden no not no. <laughs> the one who dressed seven women's clothes that's not the point uh-huh. uh and Telly Savalas and it's like Basically, in any scene, there's probably somebody you'll recognize either from American television or American cinema. Uh, and it just looks really cool. Uh, G- uh, on Sidow is, is two-dimensional, but still, there are moments when you feel real pity for him. The images are great. How many... And you wish that you had seen this on on a big screen, because it's made right. for a big All screen. Right. One last question. How does it hold up against uh, the other big one, The Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments is more of a story-driven, character-driven thing. This is about basically seeing Jesus in a place uh, with very beautiful visuals. You need to see it in a big screen. I was mm. like, it has such scope, and I really wish that there's to be a chance for me to see this in a theater. In Cinerama. It, yes, in Cinerama, because it's just huge in scope. Charlton Heston is also John the Baptist. Uh, you were over two minutes, but I'll allow it. All right, there we go. Uh, let me get my phone back up. Uh, blah, 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 blah. All right, go. Okay, my next movie, and I almost felt hesitant to talk about it because I really, really, really want you to see it, is Big Hero 6. Okay. Um, another movie with a number. This one is the latest from Disney Animation Studios. Um, this one is actually the first Disney movie adapted from Marvel. However, it's not that really seems promising a thing. because it's not just Marvel films in their own studio. This seems like it's no, a good but, but blend. but the thing is, it's that it's I'm not, saying it's intriguing. Go. It's not really Marvel, though. It's more like Disney... It's like it's really a Disney controlled thing. It's like Marvel so just it's happens like a to be take there. On Marvel. Yeah, that's it's exactly Marvel, the way it's put it. It's Marvel, but it's firmly in Disney's drive. In exactly, Disney's and it's also it reminds me a lot of anime, and that's why I want you to see it because what the movie's about is that this young boy, he uh, well not this young boy, he's fourteen. He has an older brother who goes to like a robotics school, and he wants to get his brother there, and he shows him all his friends and his professor, and. Uh, then a tragic thing happens where the the brother dies in an accident that could have been prevented. But quickly after that, the bro- like the young boy finds his the brother's uh, helper robot, this guy named Baymax, who is just a giant cute guy. You've seen him because he yeah, has like the little I, you face. You can't get away from him. He's a doctor robot. But what happens is is that um, uh, this kid, his name is Hero, and he's the hero. Um, he decides that he can't help it. Hey, that's what happens in anime. This is totally an anime movie that happens to be Well, Hiro is, a, is a Japanese first name. H-I-R-O. Yes. And so what happens is, though, there's this big conspiracy that's happening. Uh, Baymax and Hiro are chased by this kabuki man. And uh, so he gathers up all of his brother's old friends and makes them into a superhero team, a.k.a. the Big Hero 6, because there are six people. And it's a fun movie. It's not one of Disney's super best. It, um, is it, it better has... than Frozen? Or can um, you not compare them? Frozen may be more of a substantial movie. Big Hero 6 is a lot more fun. And I just highly recommend it to those who like people like you. All right. Uh, <sighs> I wish I could have talked more about that. Sorry You about need that. to see it. Okay, now it's my turn. And three, two, one. All right, Kiki's Delivery Service. I was trying. I'm trying to get into more Studio Ghibli stuff, and I didn't see Princess Kaguya yet. It's been like months since I've been trying you. to see that. But uh, I started here because it just happened to be in my library, and it's about a 13 year old girl who's a witch. She moves. Oh, she leaves her house in the country and goes to the big city to earn a living because this is like your rite of passage when you're a witch. Apparently, uh, she can't do much. She can't make potions. She can't do magic. The only thing she could really do is fly in her broom. So mm-hmm. she decides decides to parlay this skill into a delivery service where she can just go super fast across town. And her cat, voiced by Phil Hartman. Phil Hartman. Oh boy. Yeah. 
I remember him probably most of all. Now, here's the trouble with Studio Ghibli films that get dubbed, which is I'm never sure if I should be seeing them in English or in Japanese. Mm. Because I feel like they like when they do do the dubs, that they cram a lot of celebrities in there. Yes, but they, they usually do good voice work. Usually they do. All right, but Christian Bale did, like, Howl's uh, Moving <laughs> Castle. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and Liam was Neeson okay. was in Ponyo. <laughs> yeah. And you're never sure if it really fits. Yeah. Uh, and it, it was like a, it was like a weird thing. Like, remember like, uh, between the Batman films, there was like an anime thing called yeah. Gotham Knight. Yeah. And what's his name? Who does the Batman voice? Did like all the Kevin Batman voice? Kevin yeah. Conroy. And he's doing like, you know, his Kevin Conroy voice, but it's coming out of this kind of willowy teenage boy. <laughs> who's That's who Batman yeah. looks like. And it's really weird and it doesn't fit yeah, at all. Well, but still, this well, movie is really good because at the end it has high stakes. And I was talking about Robin Hood, how it didn't have high stakes. This is how you do high stakes. And yet it's a lot of fun. It's a good movie for little girls. In it's a, a good movie for everybody. Sure. No, no, no. I mean, aside from the target audience, it goes wider than that. All right, and uh, by the way, I should mention it, one more it thing is really about charming, later, like but... all studios you films. Like it's basically, uh, if you you'll get charmingness out of it, like charmingness. That's, that's like their foundation, charm. Oh, and Miyazaki is a genius, so there's no even. It's not one of his best, but it is really clever and charming. Yeah, I mean, okay. and even though it's not his best, it's pretty good. Time. All right. Um, all I right. should add, by the way, that Herzog did a voice in The Wind Rises. Okay. And that was pretty awesome. So don't totally decry voice work. And well, it's on a case by case basis. It <laughs> yeah. Feel- All right, we gotta stop. All so, right. Uh, now it's your turn. Go. Okay. Um, my next movie is uh, called The Harvest. Um, this was something was that-, that is that a horror film about the girl who is kind of possessed, or is that something else? Um, no. Uh, what this is, uh, I I watched this to review for. Uh, a website. I think it's only available online. Oh, possibly. so it's new. So never. Mind. Yeah, it's very new. What it is is uh, it starts off seeming like a drama uh, starring Michael Shannon and. Uh, it sounds Emily like Watts. with that title, it definitely probably is a drama. Well, well, here's no, no. Well, here's what happens. The first half. This movie is really in two halves. The first half is about this like sick little boy who can't walk. And then there's and there's this new girl who moves into town, or rather is a neighbor. It's a very rural area, and she's just lost her father. And so these two kids are, you know, they don't really have much in their lives. The boy can't really go outside. He's not supposed to play with other kids, and they want to be friends. And this first half of the movie, I'm watching this thinking, okay, this is a very restrained type of movie. Um, the second half of the movie's work goes kind of crazy and different. Then all of a sudden, like the girl goes down to the basement and discovers that there's another boy hooked up, uh, to like hospital equipment. And, um, apparently there's a whole scheme that the parents are running. Uh, Oh, I should mention that Michael Shannon is the father and that's uh, never a good sign. No, no, no. But he's actually the more calm guy. He's the one that wants to no, do no, the right thing. No one would ever say that Michael Shannon isn't calm. Yeah, but the other one, whether though, or not, he's terrifying. Sam- is another thing. Samantha Morton is plays the uh, plays the mother, and she's the one who really goes over the top. This comes from the director John McNaughton. It's his first film in a while. He did Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer and Wild Things, and usually he makes edgy films. And the pro- biggest problem is that it's tonally inconsistent. There's no tonal similarity here. Uh, but if you're a Michael Shannon completist, check it out. Time. Okay. Ah! Okay. Uh, I'm excited. Will... Ooh, so exciting. <laughs> um, all right. I will resume for you in three, 
two, one. I don't see a lot of movies, but one of my favorite directors is Tarsim Singh, and I watched his latest movie, Mirror, Mirror, oh, The boy. Snow White Story. I went into this hoping that it would at least be better than Snow White and the Huntsman, which mm. is dismal, and it has Kristen Stewart. But I don't know if I call it dismal. I'd say it's very... dismal. Wow. All right. And it, and at first, it is disappointing. Okay. It's uh like... The script is just like the notes I made was like this script is dismal. <laughs> and, and, and it's like it, it's like no one is even paying attention to each other. The three leads are miscast: Army Hammer as the prince, Julie Roberts as the evil queen, and something. What's her name? I, uh, I the one with the eyebrows. Right, the one with the eyebrows. Lily Collins. <laughs> Lily, yes. She uh, like they all do terribly, uh, like at, at the beginning, and but then like a weird thing happened in the middle like then the dwarves gets get get introduced there are seven of them act, played by actual oh, sure. little men so. uh one of them kind of looks like peter dinklage but he's actually not uh and and they they buoy the film and nathan lane carries it too because he he's in this too and nathan he, fillion you mean? nathan lane oh nathan lane he's Sorry. he does pretty awesome uh and then towards the middle it really picks up and i was like this film's getting good Oh. Like, I never seen that happen. And by the end, I was like, yeah, I'm really enjoying this, and it's good. And there were funny moments at the end, and like everyone seemed to click into their parts. Like It took like a really long time to warm up the movie. And then once it did, it started working really well. So in other words, this movie, uh, if you're watching it on TV, start watching it in the middle. Yeah, basically. Uh, <laughs> because Army Hammer started doing funny things, like on purpose. <laughs> and so did Julia Roberts, and uh, I've never seen a movie do that. Uh, uh, yeah, and I wonder if maybe Tarsum started off like, oh god, I don't even want to be in here. But maybe halfway through the production, he kind of found like his mojo and like purpose for making the movie. Well, I don't know if he shot it chronologically or not, but but did it have his look? It had like a few little flares. Like this, there, there's a great scene in the beginning. That's the only good part of the beginning where Julia Roberts is taking these beauty treatments, and they're really good. Uh, and it's because it's Tarsum, and he does weird things. Ah. All right. I think I went, got when you made you go a little over two minutes. I just wanted to see how far you could squirt. squirt. Okay, your turn. Go, fancy pants. All right. Um, my next film is Hoop Dreams. Um, this, this is, is the, on my list, isn't it? I don't believe so. Maybe. I'm, all right. Never mind. But anyway, um, the reason I, I watched this with my classes, um, the reason I showed it to them, I told them, all right. You're watching this movie. You may think that you're going to watch, oh, this story about basketball. Ooh, I get to watch Dunk's Throne and all this stuff. No, no, no. This is about life. This is about life lived to like with families and showing the struggles of just trying to make it and, you know, what it means to dream and try to chase, you know, accomplishing something in your young life. Um, this movie is significant in a couple ways. I mean, the first thing to remember is that. Both Siskel and Ebert put this as their favorite film of the 1990s. Um, like, Ebert, like they actually, tr like, tr like they actually, like, caused a ruckus when this movie didn't even get nominated for best documentary at the Oscars. Wow. Um, and basically, what the movie's about, it follows two young boys in Chicago. They are uh, Arthur and Arthur Agee and William Gates. And we follow them all through high school in a style not unlike Boyhood, actually. And in a way, watching this after not seeing Boyhood, after seeing Boyhood recently, I actually like the high school moments in this movie more than Boyhood because you're really watching how much stress they're doing and also their families, how much change happens over time. It's three hours, but it goes by in a flash. I mean, and you get really emotionally invested in what happens to these kids and also their parents. Uh, you know, it's like the mother, ha like she goes to, one of the mothers goes to nursing school and she finally gets her nursing degree. And like, you know, you almost want to like cry because it's like, 
wow, you finally made it. You know, you've actually like and gotten they're something. Real people. It's not yeah, just well, they're script. they're growing up in lower class, lower class uh, Chicago, and so trying to make it as a basketball player is so important. And this documentary, it is incredible, and everybody should see it because uh, Ebert told you to. Along All right. with me. Time's up. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm making like tension noises. Come on. Okay, in three, two, one. Going on with classic animation, I saw The Secret of Nim for the first time. Really? Yes, the first for the first time. time. Dom uh, Booth classic from yeah, 1982. And the thing that struck me, like, in the very beginning, it's just like a guy ne- talking and you barely see him. The mouse, yeah. It's Nicodemus, and he's writing in a journal. And it's not like he writes and the words appear like an ink. He writes, and then, like, five seconds afterwards, the words, like, burst into flame. And then you see him in the reflection of a medallion. And that's crazy animation because you're not just illustrating something that make that you think of automatically yeah. it's 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 they, they they took it and went one step further and they did it in animation yeah and then there there's like little details that stick out to me about this movie like the like the owl played by david uh john carradine he oh yeah he is uh, he's, i love he's that this owl. ancient looking owl and he has cobwebs stuck to him and the cobwebs are an interesting choice. When they first show him, you don't even know you don't even know what it is. You don't know if it's an owl or what. Like he like twists his head and contorts. Yeah. I remember I didn't see this when I was a real little kid, but I saw it when I was like eleven or twelve. And I remember seeing that and going like, Whoa. Yeah. That's, that's like, unique. He crushes a spider and he twists his neck. And that's his intro- his introduction. And I have all these like little things like Nicodemus has this uneven mustache. Yeah. And there's like when someone's breathing through a straw through the water, you hear the sound of a little water in the straw. And uh, I uh, come on, keep going. I, I can't come on. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and it's just because you see these little details that you never saw before. Like that you the animation is textured. Yes. And Will Wheaton's in it. Aldo Ray is in it. Will Wheaton? Uh, yes. He, like, a very young Will Wheaton. Oh, Aldo Ray. Wow. And Aldo Ray. And it still holds up because it has a well-written plot and characters you love. Uh, and it has some violent stabbing death. Like, not <laughs> even, like, cut away. Like, people get stabbed and die. And that's the end of your review. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Give me a minute to recover. All right. Well, that's the last of my movie. Now, you have to do several movies without a break. Ugh. <laughs> All right, buddy. Here we go. Time. Okay. Uh, first movie, um, The Human Tornado. Um, I don't know if you ever heard this movie. We <laughs> <laughs> we watched one of his movies, I think, for movie night. Uh, Mr. Directed Dol- by The Human Tornado. <laughs> no. Um, Mr. Rudy Ray Moore, who played oh. Dolomite. And, yeah, you know, we was saw also Dolomite the- together. Yeah, and, we were- and it was the inspiration for Black Dynamite. Um now what I did was I wrote a, a a sort of rhyme because everything in this movie is in rhyme and just a hint of what all I wrote all the time, all the time I rhyme and so I one of the things I wrote was so here we do have a movie so so bad that it comes back around to making me feel glad to get a rude motherfucker like Mister Dolomite who does kung fu sped up and has his white and black women just right. To where they go buck wild, ceilings and chandeliers falling on their asses, breaking up all their shitty parties and turning hockey cops and redneck sheriffs into grass. 
If there's any way to tell there's a plot, there's barely one anyhow. Two of Dolomite's girls kidnapped and held an uproarious torture pound. Wait, what? It is funny how these girls are whipped and maimed? Okay, not really, but their captors are all over the sort of the top. You can't blame. Then there's all sorts of crazy things happening in this tale, like Dolomite blowing up a car along with his own. Hell, it's tooth and nail. To the finish. So much debauchery along the way. So can't tell they're having fun and don't know what to say. Is it all bad? Is some good? Do you laugh at them or not? There's a little column A, a little B, but too much insanity they got to know for sure hey at least it's not as bad as the boom shots and dolomite and the music's kind of rad yes i just said rad you mad and i still have 20 seconds uh, all right so with this movie <laughs> all right stop slow clapping i have to talk more um this movie is not good i mean it's a, one of these it's a low rent black exploitation movie it's absolutely crazy but um, Rudy Gray Moore is, is like a, a real presence to watch on screen. <laughs> He's so bad, but the movie is so much fun, and it's better made All than right, Dolomite. Time. It's better than Dolomite. All okay, right, now next one, go. All right, next up is the movie Going Clear, which is a new documentary. It premiered on. Oh, HBO. it's about Scientology. This is about Scientology. It comes from Mr. Alex Gibney. Um, now I don't know how many of you out there, or even you, Andrew, know about Scientology, but this Only movie. What South Park taught me. Only what South Park taught you. Well, this movie goes into a little more, with the exception that it doesn't show anything from Battlefield Earth. So if you're Thank looking, God. if you're looking for anything from the Cyclos, you will be mistaken. However, it does go into uh, John Travolta a bit, and especially Tom Cruise. Um, but what the movie's really about, it looks at you know Scientology as what is it? it? You know, it started off basically as the creation of the sci-fi writer L. Ron Hubbard. Uh, he first created Scientology through his book Dianetics as this means for psychotherapy. He meant it as a way to try to help people, even though it was completely psych crazy and bonkers. And then in order to try to dodge the IRS, he tried to make it a religion. And of course, for the rest of his life, he kept trying and trying, but he never succeeded. It was only until after he died and the people who followed him, including the man David Miscavige, who is evil incarnate. That sounds like an even <laughs> evil villain name. In the movie, they show him posing by his desk in his office, and it looks like when you see one of those paintings of a villain in a movie, and he looks evil. <laughs> his it's like, eyes follow you. Yes. And <laughs> they basically, he used his minions in Scientology to sue thousands of people in the IRS to the point where finally they gave them religious status just so they would drop the lawsuits. Jeez. Um, Scientology, Scientology is pretty fucked up and this movie does a great job of showing that that's basically a mob it's like a mob but it's also a cult and it's like you're watching dystopian fiction coming alive before your eyes and it made me wish I didn't like Tom Cruise as an actor done <sighs> next All right. next up is the film Three Colors White now previously we talked about you said about, that red is the best I still think red is the best Right behind it is blue, and then now we have white. We so you've seen the worst of the three. What are your impressions? Well, I won't say... It's not a bad movie. It's actually pretty good. This, it's, <laughs> this is the Godfather 3 of the Three Colors trilogy. No, 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 no. It's, um, it's, what I would say about it is the movie is about a relationship that has sort of crumbled between this Polish guy and... I forget his name, but he's married, but he's married originally to Julie Delpy. And they get a divorce because she's kind of like a, a tease. And he goes back to Poland. He's a Polish guy. And he tries to build himself back up. 
Um, but he decides that, you know, he can't get Julie Delpy out of his mind because she's really beautiful and he's kind of a schlub. If it was an American movie, he'd be played by Paul Giamatti, um, to give you an idea of what yeah. he's like. Um, but he's sort of obsessed with her. So he decides that he's going to build himself back up to the point where, um, training montage. Oh, sort of. Well, there are a lot of things that happen in this movie. It's, it's actually quite funny in a very sad way at times. Like he, he does a lot of weird things. Like he, in order to smuggle him, himself back in the, uh, into Poland, he hides himself inside of a suitcase. Um, <laughs> like he, I've often wondered if that would work. I know me too. And this movie tries to show that even though like his suitcase doesn't arrive at the airport, it gets stolen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so there's that. It sounds um, like a Woody Allen film. It's it is it, it's kind of dark. It gets dark at times. The ending is kind of sad in a way. Um, I think that like, and there are weird things. Like at one point, uh, there's a sex scene, and the point of orgasm, all of a sudden, the screen goes white, and uh, there are things like that. Um, so I'd still recommend it. It's not the best of the three, but you should see all three films in the Colors trilogy. All right, time. Next movie. How many do you have left? Um, I have two. All right. I think. Number two, go. All right. Now, this one, I wasn't entirely sure if I should count it, but I'm going to do it anyway. This is another HBO project, uh, even though it's technically a series. Um, It's called The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of uh, Robert Durst. Jinx a lot per Jinxington. Have you ever heard of this guy, Robert Durst? No. Okay. This guy is really fascinating. So what happened is, in the early 80s, there, um, there was this case where this woman went missing. Um, her name was Kathy Durst and her husband was sort of suspected of killing her, but there was never any charge placed against him. He came from a very, very wealthy real estate family. Like they own lots and lots of property in Manhattan. They still do. And they did back then. Um, but nobody could ever pin anything on him, even though all of, all of her friends really suspected them. They were engaged, but then they, uh, they were married, I should say, but they got divorced, um, and so Robert Durst, he got away with, you know, a lot of people thought he got away with murder, then cut to 2000, the year 2000. And two more things happen. A woman named Susan Morse, uh, winds up dead in Los Angeles. She was connected with Robert Durst as friends with him, but he was never, you know, even though he was supposed, you know, he was in Los Angeles, there was never any proof there Yeah. until recently though. There was a whole lot in the series. Then there was another murder that happened to this guy named Morris Black, who was just this guy living in this apartment. Like he, Robert Durst was hiding out in Galveston, Texas, and he disguised himself as a woman and he wore a blonde wig. And this wasn't the type of guy who could easily pass off as a woman. This guy was not a looker, and um, he was charged <laughs> with the murder. Hot, he was charged with murder because the guy's body parts were found like in the river. And he admitted to cutting him up. What? But he said he did it in self-defense. <laughs> so, Unless he was a deadite, that defense doesn't work. Go, see, go see the jinx. All right. See this two-minute thing. So much to say about one. the jinx. All right. And this is uh, my last movie. All right. Go. My last movie is 1944's Laura by Otto Preminger. All right. And um, this is a, a classic uh, film noir. Uh, we talked about film noirs a little bit a while ago. Um, I always thought Laura is a very cool woman's name. Yeah, it's a good point. It is kind of a cool woman's name. What we get in this story is another, is a story of this detective who's... It's not fancy, but it has an elegance. 
Well, very much. Well, it's a very it's a crackerjack suspense film, but it's driven by character and motivation dialogue. What we get is the story about this guy played by Dana Andrews, uh, another Hall of Famer from uh, from Wages of Cinema. He was in the Best Years of Our Lives. He plays this detective uh, who's brought on by uh, Clifton Webb, who was related, who was going out with. Uh, Laura played by Gene Turney. Um, but now Gene Turney, like she's protect, suspected to be dead, even though they can't find her. Um, but she's also connected to uh, another man played by Vincent Price. Nice. Um, Good so old he, Vincent Price. Vincent Price, who is here sans mustache and looks really odd without it. Well, that's the beginning of his career, basically. He yeah, really this was in the 40s. Vincent Price. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't a horror guy, even though. You know, you can tell that he's a suspect by just the way he he's acts. Just by the just by the virtue of being Vincent Price. Exactly. <laughs> um, what this movie like, I love that it it really does take up more about character and motivation. You're always watching these people just try to find out what's their next move. I mean, because what happens with Laura, you see most of it in the first half in flashbacks, and then the second half is when a sort of twist happens. Um, now this is 1944 production, so it can't get too crazy, but the twists that do happen are really amazing. Clifton Webb is really wonderful. Um, he's a real great heel. And that's all. And that is all. You look exhausted. <laughs> I, I the, feel the like sweat's I, pouring off your face. I feel like I just your underarms a... are soaked. Well, my underarms you, you've are been... usually soaked. Well, yeah, <laughs> you need to know that. TMI, guys. Um, all right, so why don't we take a quick break, and then we'll come back and do the list. <laughs> all right. See you, guys. 